you can't go, well, kids nowadays don't like to, you know, they don't know how to fail or kids nowadays aren't tough enough, but then simultaneously not give them the opportunity to develop the toughness that goes through failure. If you're giving kids habitual 3-0 take signs and that kid turns out to be soft because they don't know what it means to be given that type of freedom to perform and then fail, that's your fault. It's just kind of starting with that baseline and getting a good idea of like what we're starting with and then building that progressively from that point. Hey everybody, welcome back to the High School Coaches Club. I'm your host, Max Price. This upcoming week is the start of our school year and I'm super excited to get back in the classroom and out on the field with my students and student athletes. I feel super refreshed and rejuvenated for another year and I owe a ton of that to you, honestly. Um, it's just been really special getting to connect with so many people through this through this endeavor. And um, while you're here, it would mean a lot if you just took a moment to leave a rating, especially if you're listening on an Apple device. And be sure to head over to highschoolcoachesclub.com to sign up for the free newsletter and to grab your very own stickers to help support the show. Thanks for tuning in. And a huge thank you to Will and the gang over at Netting Pros for sponsoring the High School Coaches Club. In addition to the design aspect of facility improvement, netting professionals specialize in the fabrication and installation of custom netting, digital graphic wall padding, windscreen turf, turf protectors, benches, cubbies, and so much more. Obviously, baseball and softball are giant markets for netting pros, but they have customers in football, soccer, lacrosse, track and field, golf, and just about any sport you can imagine. They're truly making facilities better all across America, providing high quality products and services to recreational, college, professional, and of course what we all care about, high school, facilities, fields, courses, and stadiums throughout the country. You can contact them today by calling 844-620-2707, emailing info at nettingpros.com, visiting their website, nettingpros.com, or by checking them out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. They're amazing, and they're improving programs one facility at a time. This podcast is also sponsored by Driveline Plus. High school coaching is about effectively identifying and communicating what athletes need to do to improve. Driveline Plus is a growing and ever-changing library of the best information on baseball player development. Members will find how-tos on different baseball technology and the latest research findings from Driveline's lab, along with inside access to Driveline trainers to make sure you can effectively coach your team. Plus, members also get the best discounts that you can find on Driveline training gear. Listeners of this podcast can get 25 bucks off their first year of Driveline Plus by using the coupon code HSCC. That's the letters HSCC, High School Coaches Club, right? <laughs> For $25 off your first year of Driveline Plus. Go to drivelinebaseball.com slash plus to learn more. You can also find the link down in the show notes. This episode ironically features the director of youth baseball at Driveline, Devin Morgan. Oddly enough, and I'm being super, super honest with you here, the fact that this episode is sponsored by Driveline Plus is purely coincidental. I asked Devin to come on the show quite a while back to talk about something he's incredibly passionate about, and that's youth baseball. So no, he's not a high school coach, and no, he's not going to try to use analogies for sports outside of baseball. He'll stick within that realm. But this is a conversation you need to hear, regardless of sport, because it's going to help you improve your high school program. We all know that one of the major keys to success at the high school level is to have athletes that walk in the door as freshmen who have a strong foundation already. Having a solid youth program in your area, then, it's a necessity. So grab a notepad, listen in, and apply this knowledge to whatever sport you do coach. 
even if that's baseball, <laughs> maybe even especially if that's baseball. I promise you, it's gonna open your eyes to some things you might never have even considered. So let's do it, I'm super excited. Let's dive in. It's episode 46 with Devin Morgan. All right, I'm here with, uh, here with Devin Morgan of Driveline Baseball. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I'm super glad to have you, and uh, obviously we connected on Twitter a long time ago. I think it was really early when you just came aboard at at Driveline, and then obviously you've gone through a lot of phases since then, and your kind of job there has changed a little bit. Yeah, substantially. I mean, I I came on in just kind of as an administrative and the operations manager role um, when it was just myself and my brother, Colin Hetzler. We were the only two people in the uh, customer relations department. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, the three, three and a half years or whatever in drivelines feels like about easily somewhere between five to 10, but like very in a very, very good way, you know? Yes, it, it has changed. Uh, so much, and we'll get into into all that too, I'm sure. But it just seeing driveline's growth has been crazy. But um, you are a self proclaimed teriyaki enthusiast, so I want to start oh, yeah. there. Um, wh- of all the teriyaki places you've ever been, uh, what's your number one? Oh man, number one of all time. Well, number one of all time, it's got to be a Toshi's, and not like uh, one of the Toshi's places that just like has the name, but like isn't like the real Toshi's recipe, but like. OG Capitol Hill Toshi's where this all started is, I mean, that's the foundation. Um, I, I, we could spend probably an hour talking about teriyaki and I would be well equipped <laughs> to have that conversation. Um, but yeah, man, you, you got to go for like a real like Toshi's or Toshi style. That's, that's the Toshi's the originator. Uh, yeah, I had to ask my, my kiddo's got a lot of dairy allergies. He just turned two or dairy. It's a lot of allergies. Sorry, dairy included, but soy and some other things, sesame. And so he's got some allergies to some stuff that has uh, driven my ability to have most teriyaki kind of away. Oh man. Uh, boy, that is my, my life would be markedly worse if I couldn't <laughs> eat teriyaki. Uh, that's how I feel about pizza. We got, have to get kind of like the dairy free, soy free, gluten free pizza. And it's like, I might as well just not have pizza anywhere. This isn't real. Uh, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. That's, that's tough, man. That's tough. Yeah. You just got to adapt and overcome, you know? That's right. We're trying. So you, uh, you know, obviously you're, you know, into the youth baseball scene uh, incredibly much. That's that's where you spend pretty much all your time, basically. And I kind of want to go back to your own experiences and and just kind of ask you what your own youth and high school experiences were in regards to athletics. Sure. Um, so grew up playing ball. Um you know, my, my dad, uh, my dad was a left-handed pitcher and, uh, and threw the ball pretty hard. I was a right-hander that didn't throw the ball really hard. So take from <laughs> that what you will. Um, but like, uh, you know, in so much as it matters and in so much as like, I even remember it because, you know, it's a long time ago and, and my athletic career was never one of any like particular import. Uh, I could hit the ball a little bit. Um, I hit the ball, I hit and I played catcher. Um, so when I was probably like 12 or 13, I got slid up to play with some older kids um, in just like the local rec league because, again, I'm very old. And travel baseball wasn't really a thing uh, in so much as it, like it was something we were aware of in our community. Um, so I got pulled up to play with some older kids who were, uh, I don't know, a year or two older than I was. And um the head coach of that team was the same head coach of my soon-to-be high school baseball team. Um, and we, I don't know how far like deep down into the rabbit hole we want to get here, but like 
Um, you know, sliding up into that team wasn't really the best social environment. Um, and the coach didn't do a heck of a lot to stop it. And, uh, and I get hit. So like I took one of the older kids starting jobs, but then that kind of made things go socially even worse for me. Um, and, uh, and the coach really didn't apply a lot of support or like, you know, but man, that's how coaching was back then. Like, I I don't want to, you know, make it about him because like, uh, you know, some of that you just got to go through and you just got to toughen up. And I will, I'm like not afraid to admit that as like a, I don't know, a 13, 14 or 15 year old kid, uh, maybe I just wasn't tough enough back then. But what I, uh, what I was aware of is that like we were playing, uh, we were playing one time, this is right before like high school baseball tryouts. Uh, we were playing actually at a field that's probably like five minutes from where I live right now. Um, and I was in the box uh, and I think there was a runner on second or something like that. And, uh, I don't remember exactly what the count was. Like it was a, it was a plus count. I think it was two, one or, or three Oh or three, one or something like that. And a pitch came in behind my head and, um, and I got my head out of the way. Cause that was the first thing I was kind of worried about. Um, but I didn't get the bat out of the way. And like, you know, I mean, there's a teachable moment there, right? Like you, you want to kind of number one, make sure you don't get dumbed in the head. And number two, like try not to wear, you know, a bad foul ball. Well, that's what happened. A uh, ball uh, hit the bat. Um, so I go from like a plus count to either even or three, two or whatever. Um, and as soon as that happened, uh, my coach just starts like lighting me up from the dugout and like, I'm still actively in the box, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember kind of standing there and being like, man, uh, I'm pretty sure this is like not how you're supposed to treat kids. <laughs> like it's not, it's not helping me any more so than just like, uh, just like, Hey man, I didn't want to take that strike either. You know? Uh, so I can't remember how the at bat resolved. Um, I, I think I actually got on I, or I think I got on eventually I was coming back to the dugout at the end of the inning. Um, cause I didn't come around to score. And then he starts like lighting me up some more. And I was just like, man, I'm kind of done with this. Um, and like, like really like shortly thereafter, we had a high school baseball tryouts and I didn't show up. Um, and a couple of my buddies, because I was playing with kids who were already on, uh, on that high school team. Right. Um, so like, I remember, you know, I saw some of them probably not too, it was like the day after tryouts I was like, yo, like, why didn't you show up? And I was like, man, I don't want to play for that guy. Yeah. And, uh, and that was just kind of the decision that I made. Um, and I like played another year for him, like on the rec side or whatever it was American Legion or Babe Ruth or, you know, whatever it was back then. Um, I think I played another year for him. Um, but like, I just had no interest in kind of expanding my time under him. And that was kind of, um, you know, the only kind of like playing opportunities that I was aware of. So it got to a point where I was like, I'm just going to focus on basketball. And I stopped playing baseball as probably like a 16 year old. Um, so you can infer from that what you will about kind of the the passions that I have today about like trying to promote more positive coaching. Like yeah. there's definitely, there's definitely a trail of breadcrumbs there, you know? Well, and it, and then obviously you end up at driveline. And so for, it, it kind of resembles on a different scale, what we've seen a lot of where guys like Jason Ochart, who, you know, didn't play, you know, professional baseball, certainly wasn't a major leaguer who ends up, you know, at pretty high level in major league baseball, guys like Kai Correa, who played, you know, division three baseball up here in yep. the Northwest. And he's a bench coach for the, you know, San Francisco giants. And I'm not comparing you to them. So don't feel like you have to do like a humbling sentence after this, <laughs> but, um, but it's kind of that similar thing where we have a lot of people who are, um, 
being able, you know, being in positions of influence now in worlds that in traditional days, you know, someone would go to Devin Morgan and they'd look at his resume and they'd go, oh, I didn't even play high school baseball. So why would I listen to this guy? Right. And like, and not to get like too hippy dippy about it within like the first 10 minutes of our talk here, but <laughs> um, to a degree, this is the type of democracy that the internet brings about, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's not like we're very limited in just like one way that we can kind of stratify uh, accomplishment and ability, right? We, we have a very, very broad lens. We look at all this stuff through and it kind of just turns into like, well, what do you produce? You know, like what, what is, what do you Mm -hmm. produce relative to everybody else? What do they produce? And, uh, and, and, you know, what's your expertise? Um, And and by no means would I ever say that I'm a youth baseball expert. I've done this for like a decade of my life. I've poured my time and energy and effort into it because it's something I'm really, really passionate about, but it's very much like that learning paradigm where it's like, at the beginning of the slope, you're like, oh, I think I knew everything. At the top <laughs> yes, of it, you're yes. like, oh, I know it all. And then on the backside of that curve, you're like, man, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of stuff, but I actually think I kind of know nothing. Um, yes. So it's like, you know, there there's a deep, dark corner of the of the Twitter world where there are there's one one or two people in particular that devote a significant amount of their attention to like kind of uh, saying not nice things about me and my kids and et cetera. And it's funny because it's like, man, look, uh, the, the democratic way that this works is that if you put things out in the ecosystem and people like them and people benefit from them, they want more from you. Um, and like, and that's what I've tried to do, right? In the last 10 years of my life, I have tried to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And then eventually with the Youth Baseball Development Certification, I felt confident that I had kind of like learned enough, enough both in terms of like actual learning sense and then practical application. And then also in combination with my time at driveline and learning from guys like Ochart, Sam Breen, Brian Leslie, uh, Eric Jagers, Rob Hill, Max Gordon, like, man, I have learned so much from these guys. It was like, okay, now let's try to produce something to help people get up to speed faster than it took me. Right. Like it took me like a decade of my life to get to this point. How can I create something that help can help somebody get there in like, 10 hours. Well, that's the youth baseball development certification. And we put it out and people liked it and they told other people about it and it's continued to kind of spin into its own thing. Um, and, and I, man, I don't know, you know, I, I can't apologize for the fact that like, I wasn't, I didn't play D one baseball. I can't apologize for the fact that like, I didn't even play high school baseball. I'm very open and honest about it. And I understand why. Uh, and what I've tried to do is take a lot of the 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 signal from my own life, uh, the signal from working with young athletes and go like, well, how do we construct something that's the best of both worlds, right? How do we construct something that is emotionally validating and engaging for youth athletes who at a biological level um, aren't, man, they're not small adults. They're just children. Uh, how do we construct something that is engaging and validating for athletes of that specific type but also pushes them uh, towards a skill development place that makes high school baseball coaches like you, it makes your life easier. Like that's what we're trying to do. Um, And and to a degree by doing that, what we want to do is kind of reject like this game theory, optimal approach to youth baseball at like the 60 foot base level. Right. It's just like, 
making that our paradigm of what we move towards and going like anything that satisfies our need to win at this really weird field configuration is like the thing that we really, really need to overemphasize. It's like, no, real baseball starts at 90 feet and 90 foot baseball generally starts by the time that you're about 13 or 14. So if kids start playing T-ball at like age five or six, how do we make the most use of our time over like the next seven years or whatever that is to help kids get set up for success when they get in this gigantic transformation in play space. When you go from like a 7,000 square foot field to a 27,000 square foot field, you can't underestimate how significant that transition is. And to a degree, I believe that by focusing on skills at scale, copyright, uh, (laughs) that, that like, that we're making that path of transition more viable. Right. Uh, that that's just, I think a thing that we can, that we can do. Well, yeah, you go back into the idea of game theory and things like that at, at youth baseball, obviously because of the field dimensions, uh, because of the, I always think of like the ability of a catcher to, you know, throw a baseball, uh, someone to catch a baseball. So if I'm coaching youth baseball and I really want to win this baseball game, there are things I can do with my team to help us win the game. And the idea, and not to put words in your mouth, but the idea behind skills that scale is less focus on let's just steal bases with these little guys. Let's bunt and have the other team screw up and make a lot of mistakes because they're 10 years old, 12 years old, whatever. And we'll score a bunch of runs and win. Um, getting away from that and getting more into let's focus on the skills that will scale. Obviously, like by the time they're, getting to the 90 foot bases and whatnot, that they're going to have the skill set that's a foundation to build off of. Whereas for a lot of guys, a lot of youth kids, they get to that 90 foot deal and they, they have, they're at a huge disadvantage because their previous coaches at the youth level were so focused on winning and making the other team screw up that they haven't had the same access to building foundational skills. 1000%. And to, to, to put it in very simple terms, Winning is not the be-all, end-all when you're talking about like prepubescent, pre-high school children. It's just not, right? And, and it's and it's preposterous to kind of see it get treated that way, right? Like we don't treat, uh, you know, math class that way. <laughs> like we, you know, we, yeah. we don't. Uh, but what we do in youth baseball a lot of times, and, and, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, right? I think no. there's a ton, there's tons of men's, men and women out there, moms and dads and coaches who do a great job of like living on both sides, right? Um, teaching kids the importance of, comp- of of winning, and it's and like, man, I, winning is important. I'm not trying yes. to say that it isn't. What I'm saying is, is that you have to decide the degree to which you're willing to sacrifice developmental opportunities to pursue that objective, right? And you have to understand uh, to what degree the strategies you use to try to win games at the 60 foot level is like the exact opposite of developmental choices you would make if you're trying to set up for a kid to be able to compete adequately in that transition to a 90 foot field. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, basically in youth baseball, a lot of times a walk is a triple, right? Yes. Like yes. Uh, a, a walk is a triple, <laughs> a hit by pitch is a triple, um, a bunt is a base hit. Uh, a walk is a triple because oftentimes uh, between a combination of just like uh, a lack of time to train catching as a position, right? Um, arm strength or the lack thereof, and just kind of technical inability to constrain uh, the run game. A walk is a triple. Uh, it's just, man, it's just going to be a thing. So um, if you see kind of that game theory optimal path, 
then to a degree, you are incentivized to tell kids not to swing, to uh, to give kids 3-0 take signs or 2-1 take signs that lead to 3-1 take signs um, because you know that you're essentially like raising the likelihood of getting that base runner. If you get that base runner, it's highly likely that base runner is going to go from first to third, and then you're that much more likely to put a run in the books. Along the way, if you are just punting on like three or four different developmental opportunities, learning opportunities, that is a missed opportunity that you can't get back. And uh, and one of the things we've kind of said repeatedly is just like youth sports should be the lowest level of consequence because there aren't that, you know, uh, Tim Corbin isn't signing kids at age 11, right? Like that's not <laughs> – yep. You know, that's just not a thing. Nate Yeske is not like giving scholarships out to 12 year olds. Um, So if we understand that that's kind of the landscape, then it should give us the freedom to start to empower our kids to embrace these learning opportunities. Um, Yes, I recognize that at the high school level, there is a time and a place for a 3-1 take sign or a 3-0 take sign. I get it because the consequence level is, is different. The competitors are different. Uh, on the youth baseball side of things, what I'm trying to produce for you, Max Price, high school baseball coach, is a kid who's gotten 3-0 green lights in a time where there was very, very low, low amounts of consequence for whatever happened on either side of the equation if I give that kid the freedom to swing. And if by giving that kid the freedom to swing, that kid starts to develop an approach and they start to develop uh, an intent that is like, I am going to hit this ball really, really hard if it's hittable uh, because I open up the door for more positive outcomes when I hit the ball hard because hitting the ball hard is good. Uh, I think that like in my talking to high school baseball coaches, and you can validate this, that you are more interested in receiving that player than the player on the other side of the equation. (laughs) Yes. Right. Be, because, uh, again, if you're smart enough to know at the upper levels of things that hitting the ball hard is essentially opens up the door for better outcomes, then we need to have kids that are trained on that paradigm. Um, that means they start to develop an approach. And like, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the olds, uh, capital T, capital O, um, and people that like are very uh, disparaging towards modern baseball, um, they advocate for things like this, right? They're like, well, we should teach hitting by hit- hitting. Um, we should teach kids how to develop an approach. And it's like, yeah, I agree. Uh, that's exactly <laughs> what we should do. We should teach kids to hit by hitting. And what I'm trying to do is use data and, and other kind of uh, information and technology to give kids context about what good hitting is. Good hitting is not practicing Uh, hitting low line drives that are just outs to either the second baseman or the shortstop. Good hitting is hitting the ball hard in the air. And I understand for a lot of people, when I say hitting the ball hard in the air, they freak out and they start blathering about launch angle and it's whatever. So fine. We're just going to talk about hitting line drives because if I say that, it's safe and nobody's going to get mad at me. Uh, If you want kids that are going to hit line drives, then you need to empower them and train them to hit line drives. And what that is is not practicing hitting ground balls through the four hole. What that is, is not uh, essentially like habitually giving kids 3-0 take signs because you don't trust them. It's embracing these type of learning opportunities and letting kids grow through them. And it's not to say that they're always going to be successful. Um, If they were successful all the time, then it's probably too easy. It's giving them freedom, embracing the fact that there really are no negative consequences. And if there are negative consequences, 
which is that kids don't like to lose because it makes them feel bad. As an adult, I should be prepared to provide them with context to understand that it's okay, right? This is baseball, man. The sport is not predicated on batting like 800 or above, or you're a failure. Like the old, the old, the old saw, right? You, you know, you hit 300 for 10 years and you're going to be in consideration for the hall or whatever. Like that means you're failing seven times out of 10, but that means you're really able to like maximize the value of those three times out of 10 where you get something that is that you can put a really, really good swing on. Or sometimes you just have to adapt and put a bad swing on, but you still hit the ball hard enough to produce something that is valuable. Um, if you want kids to get to that place, as far as I can tell, the most optimal way to do that is that when they're young, embrace these type of opportunities. Like you can't go, well, kids nowadays don't like to, you know, they don't know how to fail or kids nowadays aren't tough enough, but then simultaneously not give them the opportunity to develop the toughness that goes through failure. If you're giving kids habitual 3-0 take signs and that kid turns out to be soft because they don't what it means like, they don't know what it means to be given that type of freedom to perform and then fail. That's your fault. <laughs> well, and with the freedom to fail part, and that's something that <clears throat> in terms of creating practices that also reinforce that um, is, is a huge part of what I, I know a lot of high school coaches are really working hard to do. And I'm sure it's, it's working on the youth side as well, but um, when we kind of transition to the idea of practice designing for youth sports, I know a lot of the coaches listening are, are obviously high school coaches, but um, you know, one of the values of this conversation, I think, is across all sports is that ultimately as a high school coach, we're, most of us are deeply entwined with the youth sports world that's going on around our program, because obviously when kids get to us, like you've mentioned, we want them to have certain skills. And so um, as a high school coach, I know one of the the bigger parts of my job in regards to youth sports is helping train coaches of those youth sports, of those teams that we have. And so um, one of the inevitable parts we get to is practices and how to yep. create practices for youth teams, um, how to build in this idea of freedom, how to build in failure as well, because they need, like you're talking, they need to understand how to fail and, and be okay with it in the sense that it's going to be okay. And so when you're, when you're kind of sitting down to design youth practices, uh, might look a little bit different for you than what some people are used to. Um, what types of things are you trying to build into them? Uh, man, that's a great question. And, and it really kind of depends on when, right? Um, yes. And, yes. and the tough thing that I know that a lot of high school baseball coaches have to deal with is just they don't have enough time, right? Um, you know, in, in Washington here, the WIAA, um, you know, high school baseball starts next year on February 28th. Uh, and they have 10 and they have 10 practices, uh, mandatory 10 practices, and they start playing games. That's not a lot of time, um, especially when you consider like you don't really know what your kids understand about the technical side of the game. And you might have like a, <laughs> yeah. a minor amount of insight to what they're able to produce on the skill specific side and the output side of the game. Uh, and you take those two things in combination and you are just like already up against this massive um, this massive wall of like, <laughs> these are all the things I need to teach. And, um, you can't teach all those things in 10 practices. Like there's just no way. Um, so a lot of times the, the way that the approach that I've tried to take is just like, understand that if you have a limited amount of time before you have to get kids ready in competition, you have to start making some decisions about like, what are the things that are most important? Right. Um, 
And, uh, and what are the things that we need to have in terms of just like technical and functional knowledge so that we can actually be competitive? Um, and a lot of times, uh, those are the first questions that I'm starting to kind of think about as I'm designing practices. If it's the beginning of the year, you kind of just got to figure out what you have. So a lot of like my youth practices when we start are going to be very much like uh, we got to start at kind of a low, low level of competition um, because I just need to see in an easier to execute environment what our skill specific output looks like. Uh, I need to kind of get an idea of where we are because then I can start charting out at an individual player level. What does this kid need? What does this kid need? Because it could be to- two totally different things. You could have a player who um, in a uh, an early season sample where you're trying to like figure out a baseline, uh, they move the bat very fast, but they can't sniff a barrel. Okay, and let's say you've got four players that essentially that essentially uh, kind of fall into that same bucket. Okay, well those four kids are already pretty good at moving fast. So uh, what I start thinking about is for that bucket of kids, now I need to start helping them deploy the thing that they're already good at. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go, uh, with like low level of, uh, low level of difficulty. And then we're going to try to start scaling that out. Right. So it's like, okay, you can move the bat really fast on a T and you, you don't do a good job of going like eight for eight in a soft toss round. Well, we got to get there, you know? Um, and then if we go, you know, we're going to scale from soft toss to flips to short box to live arm at varying distances, right? And I'm going to take those kids and put them in that bucket and put them in that kind of progression that's over the course of the amount of practice time that I have. And then throughout the season, I am trying to get them moving directionally towards the highest leverage, oper- like highest leverage output of the thing that they're good at. Um you could also have some kids who just like don't, they don't move fast. Okay. Well, again, uh, your path is going to be like, if you're a kid that doesn't move fast, but you find a lot of barrels. Okay. Well, let's just help you uh, design practices that are, that are revolving around helping you move faster while we maintain the thing you're already good at. Um, it's just kind of starting with that baseline and getting a good idea of like what we're starting with and then building that progressively from that point. Um, and then, but you can't kind of go to an ultimate, like you can't follow that into like this carnival style implementation of the game of basketball, baseball, because we still have to play, right? We, we have to play a game and every inning there are going to be three outs and we want to try to get those three outs as like quickly as possible to <laughs> yep. minimize the, you know, to minimize the work on our pitchers, to uh, reduce the likelihood of runs being scored, etc. So you kind of have to do this constant balancing between what do you need to do on an individual basis, uh, throwing, hitting, fielding, uh, what do we need to build in the team in kind of like the same functional sense. And then how do we, again, like help kids get ready for competition? Because at the end of the day, um, even with those kids who are kind of in these different bucket, right? A kid that moves fast, but they can't find barrels. Kids that find barrels, but they don't move fast. As we get closer to competition, and this is like that when thing, right? We want to design practices that actually resemble competition. Um, so what that what that isn't is going like well we're only going to do like I mean I do a lot of underhand flips with my with my son when and my daughter yes. when we're just hitting on a field because it's mostly just like let's have fun and hit the piss out of the ball sorry uh, let's have fun and hit the ball really hard um, and and that's okay right and man they they get more technical instruction with with guys that are way smarter than me at driveline 
when they're working with me, we could just have fun and hit the ball hard and like try to hit it into the forest. That's a yes. perfectly fine training objective. As we're getting ready to competition, though, um, we have to show them something that actually resembles competition. So um, in a facility, one way that I can do that, if I have assets to technology at driveline, well, we're going to sit on the eye pitch, right? And that eye pitch is going to show you these really disgusting sequences of like fastball, two-seamer, slider, disgusting curve. Like, it, man, we can make hitting training really, really difficult and difficult in a way that mirrors what it is in competition. Um, you know, if I was trying to do the same thing on a field and I don't have the budget for an eye pitch and all I have is like my arm, well, uh, we're going to do a lot of short box and it's going to be really firm short box. And I'm going to start trying to throw in, uh, different pitches. And I'm really trying to attack. Uh, I want them to see what it looks like when there's a person on the other side of the equation who really wants to send you back to the dugout with a frown on your face. <laughs> like, like that's, that's what competition looks like. So we need to have our practice start to resemble that. Um, and there's a bunch of different ways you can do that, whether that's, uh, reducing time, which is a lot of times you can do by either reducing distance or adding velocity, uh, increasing difficulty in terms of like the challenge level, right? Like if I know that we are going to face some, you know, lefty that's like super, super gross. Um, then maybe I'm a little bit offset on the mound because I'm trying to show them an angle that looks a lot more like competition. Or maybe it's the other thing, right? Maybe it's some righty who's like low three quarter. He's got some really disgusting slide piece. Well, maybe I'm going to slide a little bit more to the right side of the mound and I'm trying to attack in a way that resembles competition. Um, so does that answer kind of the question? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And it's, okay. uh, and it's, okay. it's a perfect answer. One thing that you mentioned a couple of times was kind of technical instruction and um, kind of, you know, makes me think of the mechanic side of it. I know all sports have various levels of mechanical instruction. I'm not sure any sport, maybe golf, I don't know, quite reaches the level uh, that baseball tends to have both good ideas and, and sometimes maybe some misguided ones. But I know there was, I think Chase wrote, if I remember right, but there, there was a recent blog post, I think driveline had um, yeah. about swing flaws, especially in young athletes in terms of how it, it might not be as big a deal as you think, because it might just be kind of a temporary solution. Can you kind of give us like the, the surface level, like what is he talking about there? Sure. Um, the, the surface level thing is to understand that uh, the swing broadly oftentimes it's a, an expression of some sort of like compensatory movement right um my swing is is generally going to be a, a combination of what i perceive cognitively right like how do i read the ball uh where do i pick it up and when and where do i think i need to swing to find a barrel right like you you can't kind of discount the cognitive side of things um there's also like the the physical compensation right which is um how well is my body able to move to attack different types of pitches, right? Um, there's a lot of guys who struggle to hit the ball on the outer third and like specifically like low and away, they struggle to hit that ball hard. Um, why is that? Well, if you can kind of discount a lot of the cognitive side of things, it could be an issue with stride direction, right? It could be an issue where um, the direction of my stride is literally like pulling me off from being able to hit that ball uh, with authority down and away. Um, it could be an issue with postural control, right? Like that I uh, don't do a good job of like holding a good hip hinge, which allows me to put my barrel in a good place to kind of hit that low and away pitch. Um, 
or be some combination of maybe both of those things, right? And, and maybe there's also cognitive process to it as well. But the general idea is that it's like, uh, we want to try to understand the way that these swing flaws presents as like, really like movement solutions, right? Like that's, the kids are trying to solve a problem, like specifically young kids. Um, they're trying to make contact with the ball because it doesn't feel good to swing and miss and they don't like it where mom or dad or coach is like, well, why didn't you hit that? Like that feels crappy. Yes. Um, so, uh, so they, they have like more, uh, more incentivization than anybody to try to find barrels and not swing and miss because like swinging and miss doesn't feel good. Um, so, they have movements where it is a lot of times either just due to like lack of strength or they're still like learning their movement patterns that um, it's like the actual root underlying cause of why they have these type of swing flaws. Um, and I think a lot of times what we do as, as coaches and, and specifically on the youth side of things is, is parents because most of us are parents Um we want to intervene, right? We, we see a swing flaw and we want to provide like an immediate mechanical correction. And, and I think that a lot of times the, the reasoning for that mechanical correction is because I just, I think as parents, we don't want to see our children fail, right? Like we, we see, we see these type of swing flaws and it's like, all right, I got to fix it. You know, if, if my, if my child is like struggling in math class, I'm going to find them a tutor and I'm going to do some additional math work, right? Like we are going to get into the mechanics of why my child is struggling in math. Well, uh, we do the same thing with hitting, right? And I think a lot of times the the path that I get really, really kind of concerned about is when we go down this kind of mechanical correction path, uh, if you look at some research that's been done already on this subject, uh, the, the typical path of mechanical correction leads the player to focus on something that has to do with what they're doing with their body internally, right? Um, what is my back elbow doing? Um, what are my shoulders doing? Uh, what is the direction of my front foot? Um, what is the direction my front foot is when I'm landing? Uh, what is my back foot doing when I'm actually like moving from the load phase into the swing phase? Uh, we, we get all this type of mechanical kind of like correction, right? And the reality is, is that a lot of times, uh, not only when we start to focus on these type of internal fixes for swing mechanics, the way that most kids solve that problem is they take motor output off the table. So we're very much like robbing Peter to pay Paul because we know that uh, as athletes uh, kind of grow and stay in the game, the ones that are the most competitive are the ones that are really good about moving fast, right? Yeah. Like that's just what it is. You know, I, this old trope about like, Oh, you know, guys just get on the mound and they're not supposed to throw harder than 75. Like, man, listen to like the on-field mic for an MLB game. Like, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> those, those guys aren't grunting the way that they are because they're just like on cruise mode, right? They're really, really good about moving really, really fast. And, uh, you don't learn how to move. Like you don't learn how to sprint by speed walking, like sprinting is sprinting. And, uh, and to a degree, we got to give kids the freedom to learn how to sprint. Um, and if you accept that you're going to get some amount of swing and miss along the way, um, you can put a kid on that path of getting better about moving fast. And then you just start to manipulate the stuff that you can to help their swing get resemble, like resemble the problem solving you're trying to do. You change environment, you change the constraints and you change the implements. 
that's the stuff that you manipulate to get swing mechanics that are just representative of the problem solving, which at a very, very fundamental level is where and when do I need to swing this bat in order to find a barrel? That's the task. Um, and there's all this other stuff on the edges that uh, make that task more or less difficult, right? Like uh, non-competitive fastballs, middle-middle, um, are pretty easy problems to solve. Uh, sliders that start from behind your head and then like <laughs> backdoor their way on the black are much harder to solve. Um, but uh, man, just for, for as much as I've learned about kind of uh, the cognitive and the physical process of deciding how and when to make that decision, I, I'm just pretty convinced that like the way that we help kids get set up for success there is you have to give them freedom. Um, and if you give them that type of freedom and you manipulate environment constraint and and, and the implement, uh, you can help them get better equipped to solve those problems. And as a, as a high school coach, there's only so much time, like you mentioned, Washington has, has pretty strict rules. Oregon is, is, is somewhat less restrictive, but still pretty restrictive out here. We get basically up to six hours a week during the off season with certain dates blocked off. But, um, okay. you know, part of, part of what you're talking about is it reminded me of how something we struggle with as coaches a lot of times is, you know, especially when you're talking baseball, we have a hitter who we think has some sort of mechanical issue. Right. Um, and, and you start diving into it and you're like, is it really a mechanical issue? Because I can watch videos of major league players who are doing this same quote unquote issue and they're super successful. So things like Chris Davis, you know, stepping in the bucket or the, you know, the way yep. Ichiro swings or Chris, you know, Hunter Pence, how he, that's just the odd way he got after it. If you look at other sports, I think of like basketball, like Antoine Walker had a really weird shot. I remember he had a really funky one. If you go like the NFL, like quarterbacks, like Jake Plummer back in the day, or even like Patrick Mahomes now kind of throwing the ball in some ways that are, are a lot of people would, you know, traditionally look at it and go, well, that's wrong. And so as, as coaches, it's a really difficult thing because we see something that looks like it's wrong, like supposedly should be mechanically incorrect. But then when we watch professional athletes, they're doing that thing. And so as a coach, it's something that, that tends to be a struggle for a lot of us because we, we think this is a problem for this kid. But the kid can go home tonight, jump on YouTube and be like, well, Nelson Cruz does this. So why can't I? Right. And man, that whole, like, I understand it, you know, like, I think in a perfect world, we would want all of our athletes to move perfectly, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that makes sense. But, but just, you know, the, the reality of our competition landscape is that it's messy. Like, it, man, mm -hmm. competition is messy. Uh, individual athletes are messy. And if I do like that square hole round peg thing, where it's like, uh, I'm a Nolan Ryan guy. Everybody's got to move like Nolan Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, if you, if you kind of take that, that paradigm in coaching and you're trying to apply that to kids who have a biological, mm -hmm. uh, you know, skeletal and muscular structure that works like Nolan Ryan, that might be a great fit. Um, what if it isn't right? Like, like what if it isn't And the crazy thing that I, I talk about this all the time when I'm like uh, giving facility tours uh, at Dryline and talking to people about our motion capture lab, where we now have uh, hitting and throwing biomechanics in addition to force plates. Um, the thing I think about a lot is I think about Tim Lincecum and I think specifically about Timmy and his parents, because as he was coming up, 
Um, you know, from the video that I've seen, Tim always had a, a fair amount of contralateral tilt, right? Like uh, yeah. tilt kind of in the in the torso in a way that's a little bit unusual for for most players. They don't throw that way. Um, well, uh, let's see: one golden spikes, uh, two Cy Youngs, and two World Series rings. Right? Do I, I think I have that right? Yeah, um, I did okay. Uh, I mean, I would say he got pretty good value out of his mechanics, but the thing that just kind of blows my mind is thinking about their journey with him when he was younger, uh, youth baseball, high school, up into college, and you know that they had to take him places, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They went places to go throw, um, whether it was showcases or just to throw a pen or working with some, some guy or whatever. How many times do you think that they had to go like, well, you're not supposed to move that way. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, it worked for him. So, so to what degree uh, are we really even equipped to kind of make those make those conclusions uh, at driveline? Uh, when we bring in guys, high school, college, and pro, we put them through this type of assessment. We try to understand their bio- biology, understand their first production, uh, understand their mechanics, but also understand their outputs because you have to understand all of those things in a very like clear and transparent way before you can really, in, in our opinion, before you can really start kind of putting them on a path to increasing performance, you have to understand the athlete holistically. Um, we, we to a degree have the very same need in youth and high school baseball. Um, it's really easy to just be like, I'm a Charlie Lau weight transfer guy. So maybe mm-hmm. everybody has to have like extreme weight transfer. Well, uh, to my eyeballs, it didn't look like Barry Bonds shifted a lot of weight forward in his swing. Now, I don't know that, right? And and I'd have an open invitation for Barry to come to driveline and get on our force plates and we could start to kind of answer those questions. But anybody <laughs> that's kind of making those conclusions without really knowing what's going on is just guessing. Um, and, and if you're really serious about improving player performance, man, guessing is not good enough. Uh, and the crazy thing is, is like, we have the same kind of need for understanding on the youth baseball side. You know, I, I got in some stupid Twitter argument with Brian from New Jersey, uh, last week because Brian from New Jersey, um, <laughs> yeah. has, Brian from New Jersey decided, uh, apropos of nothing that my kid shouldn't be able to hit the ball hard because he yeah. has a pretty big, uh, he has a pretty big leg kick. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Brian, um, here's the deal, man. My kid is 12 and, and number one is like a, is a broad caveat. I don't care. Uh, I care much more about the fact that he has fun and he hits the ball hard and that's it. Right. I just want the kid mm-hmm. to love baseball and ideally be set up with a, a set of skills that make it more likely and viable for him to continue in the game that out of the way, uh, man, for as long as my kid has played the game, he's found barrels. And for as long as he's played the game, in competition, uh, he varies the degree to which he has kind of a leg kick relative to the velocity that he faces. So I'm sure that my good friend Brian looks at that and he's like, or, you know, whatever these these other guys that, that love to just kind of uh, mm-hmm. get on people with like with like literally zero context. Or they can like creep my Twitter account, but then conveniently miss all the in-game footage I post of him hitting, which is curious, but whatever. Um Man, the kid just adapts. And, and I'm not saying that my kid is the best 12-year-old in the country. I don't even care. I wouldn't care if he was. Uh, but in so much as it matters right now in competition, he's trying to hit the ball hard. <laughs> like, And I talk to him all the time. I talk to my daughter all the time. Like, what, what's your goal? What's your intention? 
they're just trying to hit the ball hard and their movement solutions that they deploy are representative of that task. And I trust that they will make these adaptations as necessary relative to their level of success, right? Like if they start to struggle and fail, then they're going to have to adapt and find a different way. Up until that point though, why would I change? What, you know, like, oh, well, your kid can't hit 90 or 95 with that type of leg kick. All right, well, he's 12. And like, (laughs) I get that, you know, I get the kids are throwing harder and harder nowadays, but I'm pretty sure like 90, 95 is a little bit on the horizon, right? I'm not worried about that problem right now. Um, So again, it's just like, man, you you really got to understand movement in baseball. It's a representation of like all of these things, right? It's where you are on a biological level. What is your intention? What's your, what are you trying to achieve? And then specific to the hitting side, because it's just so messy. How do you need to adapt relative to the incoming pitch? Like I I did this stupid thread uh, like a week ago. um, And I, and I pulled two homers that we saw at a Mariner game. One was Mitch Hanniger way, way, way over his front foot, right? Like just got, he got fooled, but adapted, had enough bat speed to hit the ball over the fence. Um, the other one, um, oh gosh, now I'm going to blank on his name. Uh, Rangers kid, last name Garcia. Uh, really, really good. Uh, Osvaldo, is is that his name? Oh gosh, this is going to, this is going to kill me. But anyways, uh, he, (laughs) he hit a homer that was like, you know, 435 feet or whatever, um, to left center. The pitch basically should have been on a tee. It was framed that it was just like in a perfect place to hit it there. And he had a perfect swing. Um, Adolis Garcia. Gosh. There we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Man, both things are good and everything in the middle is good relative to the outcomes that you are generating. And so long as you hit the ball hard, you are opening up the door for better outcomes. Like that is just physics, math, and is borne out in statistics. Um, and, And that's kind of what we're driving towards. I think th- I think this kind of plays into it too, and it's you, you mentioned on Twitter not too long ago that it was your favorite kind of blog post of all time, or at least one of the most useful ones. And I I have to agree, it kind of it, it led me down a rabbit hole that I'm still in. Um, oh yeah, and it was it was again not to pump his his chest up too much, but it was Jason Ocharts. Um, uh, I think it was the second part of a hitting series, but it, it dove into the idea of internal and external cues. And um, anyway, can you can you get into that just a little bit as well, just for people listening of any sport, but especially baseball yeah i mean i i will pump jason up because um (laughs) because jason um is a phenomenal human being and it is incredibly insightful about working with hitters and again this kind of goes back to the thing that you probably talked about like a half hour ago uh yeah jason didn't play pro ball but jason has done a great job of working with hitters uh from when he started to now in the professional world to help them get better so what matters more But anyways, I digress. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, several years ago, uh, you know, Jason wrote um, a a couple blogs, uh, Coaching Hitting Mechanics, I believe is what they're called. It's a two-part series uh, on on the Driveline blog and and really kind of talks about this whole idea of understanding the difference between um, external cues and internal cues. Internal cues, again, being this kind of uh, obsession with the configuration of your uh, the internal configuration of your body, right? What am I doing with with this segment of the chain? What am I doing with this segment of the chain? Uh, whereas the opposite thing, right? Where we're kind of external cues. Um, 
what's our goal, right? How, what are we trying to do? Um, and if you shift and change these type of external cues, you can start to create uh, movement solutions that generate those outcomes. Um, so, you know, we have a, something at Driveline. We have a free youth practice guide that we did a while ago. Um, we, we also cover this, obviously, in a little bit more depth in the Youth Baseball Development Certification. Um, but we, you know, just like a hitting game called Around the World. Um, we are going to have essentially like three rounds. We're going to go uh, pull side, middle, oppo. Uh, and we essentially go from like um, uh, the two different speed trainer bats uh, going pull side and middle. And then we're trying to go oppo with the light bat. Or on the youth side, if you're doing that, you would do that with like their game bat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can work it the other way around, right? I am changing my external goal, which is which part of the field I'm trying to hit the ball. I am changing the constraint, um, which, well, I'm sorry, I'm changing the, I'm changing my environment target and I'm changing the implement with different weighted bats. Um, uh, doing both of those things in combination, I'm actually trying to produce hitting mechanics that solve those problems. And the difference is, is it like, um, no, I'm not practicing like grounders through the four hole because those are mostly outs. Um, Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to go like, Hey, let's hit the ball hard to the oppo side. Some of those are going to be hard ground balls through the four hole. And that's great. Uh, some of them ideally, or more of them ideally are going to be line drives into the opposite field because that's just a better outcome. And it shouldn't be sacrilege in baseball to like try to practice the good stuff. Like what it's, it's insane. It's insane that like, uh, that that's kind of a wild thing to say, right? Because you've got, you know, certain coaches who are going to be, um, they're going to have those rounds and it's like, we're just going to have rounds where we practice on moving the runner over. And like, there's a way that you can practice moving the running runner over that is, um, that is guaranteeing the, the outcome that you're going to wear it out there. Right. Um, there's a way that you can practice moving that runner over where, yeah, maybe you're going to produce some outs, but maybe you're also going to open up the world for like, uh, that's a double that scores that runner from first. Like, and, and if you could train both of those things, it boggles my mind why you wouldn't train the latter instead of the former. Yeah. And you know, again, it, it goes back to the idea of, I think anyway, it kind of goes back ultimately to, especially in new sports of that idea of, um, I don't want to say winning versus skills that scale, but skills that scale within the context of winning, I guess. Um, yep. But, it, you know, and, and so the, kind of the last place I want to go with this is when we're looking at youth sports and getting parent buy-in, um, because we've all, I assume most of us, especially the baseball people listening, have been around youth baseball, you've been to some travel stuff, you've kind of heard some of the things that parents say in the stands. And, um, you know, ultimately, this doesn't work if parents don't buy in because the parents are the one that's going to bring their kid every day. So what would you suggest for trying to help parents understand this concept? Whereas, you know, they might be watching a game and they might see you lose the game and the other team, you know, bunted and maybe we threw the ball around a little bit and where they, you know, they did the walk where they just keep running and they end up on third base, you know, get the triples and they're seeing other teams win and maybe get trophies. Sure. And how do you get parents to buy into this concept? Because obviously it makes a lot of sense and it works, but without them, it doesn't work. Um, I think one thing that helps, and this is what we've done really specifically with, uh, you know, with our driveline Academy teams 
is you need uh, a feedback loop with your parents to get them on the same page. Um, that starts with kind of uh, telling people what you're about from the start, you know, um, and just like, look, do you want your child to get better at baseball in a skill development standpoint over the course of the next 10 to 12 months? Is that a thing that's important to you? Uh, most of them are going to say yes. Then you have to say, all right, look, um, if that's something that is important to you, as it is important to me, then we need to make some developmental choices along the way where we move towards that. Um, if you can kind of get that broad trust and buy-in at the onset, then it just kind of, it's a very simple thing where you just have to show them that you're making progress, right? Um, and uh, most parents, uh, I think in, in my experience, a lot of them, they conceptualize youth sports the same way they conceptualize professional sports, right? This is why, um, you know, we, we have, I, I've, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the final kind of phase of tryouts for our driveline Academy teams. Um, and I've got parents sometimes that write in and they'll tell me like all about their child's game changer stats. And it's mm -hmm. like, uh, I mean, that's great. You know, like that, that's great. But also I kind of don't care because, yeah. uh, because, uh, because yes, production is good and, and having positive production in a box score is good. But a lot of times the degree to which that's relevant is very much the environment, right? And we're talking about children. Uh, we're not talking about uh, 16, 17, 18 year old kids where this huge like biological and calendar age disparity exists. A lot of times mm -hmm. that stuff starts to flatten out by the time we're talking about kids, yep. prepubescent children. And I'll get really, really specific, uh, like the 12 year and under kids. Uh, man, I don't care about your game changer. Um, what I do care about is probably number one, that your kid like loves baseball. Um, because if a kid loves baseball and they enjoy it, um, and I can show them that they're going to get better and I can make the, the feedback loop that's like proving those things are happening in terms of like a skill specific output. And I can balance that about what's going on in the box score, man, that kid's just going to get addicted. That kid is going to get addicted to self-improvement. Uh, they're going to get addicted to working hard because they know that it's resolving itself in positive progress. And, and again, we get a little bit hippy dippy here, right? But, uh, not all these kids that we train are going to go on to play college baseball. Uh, not all of them are going to go on to play pro baseball. It'd be great if that was a thing, but that's not going to be a thing. What is a thing is that we can help children understand that like the path between wanting to get better at something and getting better at something in the middle is work, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's, that's how you get better at something. You know, generally like the odds of winning the lottery are fairly low. Uh, the odds with being blessed with like the genetic lottery ticket where you can throw 95 and you can't bench the bar, uh, again, very low. But what you can do is you can actually apply yourself and you can work really hard and you can develop these type of attributes um, so long as you just keep working. And if you're going to keep wording, working, you want to stay like emotionally validated and engaged along the way. Um, so for us, because we have access to data and technology, we're going to use that type of stuff to empower these kids to make it like very, very transparent to them that they're getting better. Um, and for parents, I think if you involve them in that loop, you can start to get that same type of buy-in because they see that their kids get better, right? Um, if I was paying my children to go to, uh, to be better swimmers, right? 
I would want to see um, the result of that training be a reduction in time, right? Yes. Like that's the that's the metric that we like uh, that we conceptualize participation in those sports by, right? It's a stopwatch. Well, um, I'm going to make the argument that things like bat speed and exit velocity and thrown ball velocity is the equivalent of the stopwatch in baseball. Um, and yes, I have nine-year-olds that we track their velocity. Why? Well, because I want them to know that they're getting stronger and that's resulting in throwing the ball harder. Um, I want them to see that prog progress because it makes them feel good, right? Like kids like to know that they're doing better at something. And on the other side of things, uh, I also, when they're pitching in game, I'm tracking velocity because I want to monitor fat for fatigue right? Uh, because that's the other thing I have zero tolerance for is like these really stupid arm injury issues that just happen because like little Timmy goes out there and he's like throwing 50 and then he's throwing 48 and then he's throwing 46 and then it's 43 and then it's 39. And like, man, that kid is fatigued. There's enough research out there that draws a pretty direct correlation between fatigue and risk of injury. Well, then how am I going to start to observe for fatigue? Yes, I can trust my stupid old eyeballs and hopefully I'll do a pretty good job. <laughs> but the other thing that I can do is I can just set up a pocket radar and I'm not giving the kid that type of feedback. I'm just using it to help my coaches make better decisions about roster management. Um, and like, you know, that nobody in the swimming world is like, we should ban stopwatches. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, in, in baseball, very often it's like, well, you shouldn't have kids get, uh, you know, throwing in front of a radar gun. Really? Uh, because in my program, we have things like hybrid day and a hybrid day on the throwing side is a low volume and it's a low intent day where we're just kind of building in some movement patterns, but we're doing that in kind of a low intent way. If you come in and like you throw a 450 gram blue ball and the fastest you've ever thrown that thing was like 45 miles an hour and you come in on a recovery day and you throw it 46, that's some immediate signal that goes to the athlete that like, Hey, I'm going to downregulate a little bit because I know that today's goal is like a 50, 60% day. Um, I'm trying to teach kids to coach themselves. I'm trying to help kids to learn the difference in RPA on uh, RPE rate of perceived exertion between like a 90% day and a 60% day. I want them to learn how to move their bodies in the stopwatch or a radar gun or exit velocity is just a way that I can include them in that type of feedback process. Well, and, and it's also, to be honest, it's fun for kids. It's almost and like it's a video fun. game. <laughs> right. Like, man, you know, uh, you can't put your finger in the dam to stop the fact that, like, this is how kids grow up nowadays, right? Like, when I was a kid uh, and I was playing for the high school baseball coach that I really, really didn't like, my life revolved around baseball and UNTV raps and, like, comic books, and I guess girls. Like that was my life. That was the extent of it, right? Uh, these kids nowadays are very much similar, but like when they're interfacing with the world, whether that's school or recreational games, they're getting this type of data, right? Like they get assessed in the classroom and they get scored and they understand, uh, you know, like in Washington, we have these, you know, these assessment tests or whatever, and they understand like every year they're going to go through that process and they get scored, right? Uh, if I woke my kid, uh, if I woke my son up out of a dead sleep and I was like, hey, what's your level right now in MLB The Show? I guarantee you he'd be able to tell me. He'll tell me his, his level in MLB yeah. The Show. He'll tell me his level in Fortnite. He'll tell me his level in Call of Duty or whatever it is that he's playing. 
they understand this stuff, right? And like you look at the way that they deliver this, you know, Fortnite's going to roll out a new season. And within that new season, as you develop your level, right, which you get by playing the game, you get rewarded for it. They get hooked, right? That's why it's hard to pull these kids off of these games. We can send some of the same signal in baseball, right? The, the difference is, is that like ultimately you still got to get between the lines. You still got to try to win a game, right? And we're never going to move away from that. Winning most of the time is is good, right? It, it, a lot of times we kind of get in the weeds about like what we're doing to win. But again, we've kind of covered that a little bit. Outside of that, there's this whole other world of context that we can give to kids. Uh, if you have access to data and technology, we can talk about things like tracking bat speed in game and incentivizing the development of that over the course of the season. If we don't have access to technology, we can look at things like I'm tracking just hard hit balls, right? And I can observe that, I can track it, and I can incentivize it for my kids. We can talk about high intense swings uh, in the box, period, right? Like, did you, how many high intense swings did you take in today's game on hittable pitches versus how many games, how many high intense swings did you have on Sunday, right? And, and I can, I can find data in this world that is either uh, relative to technology or just relative to stuff that I can see with my eyeballs. And once I measure it, now it matters. You measure the stuff that matters. And if I include not only my players, but also my parents in this stuff, and I give them some signal and some context and some feedback that's outside of what they're going to see in a game changer scorebook, um, I believe that I can drive that engagement and that positive emotional validation thing that's going to make a kid want to keep playing baseball. It's almost the opposite uh, or the same kind of thought of when, you know, a kid like hits a blooper and gets to first base and you're like, well, it's a line drive in the, in the, in the box score. It's kind of that right. same concept of it's, it's training kids and parents to see and coaches, frankly, to see that a hard hit line drive that gets caught and, you know, maybe, maybe five feet in front of the fence um, that is something that maybe next year that ball is going out. And so right now we can chalk that up as a win. We took a high intent swing. We crushed the ball. We got the barrel to it. We're just not maybe quite strong enough yet. Maybe there's something on the chain and maybe we'll figure it out as we get older, but we're, we're, it's something positive that we can track. Whereas if you just do the old box score thing or game changer, like you're saying, it's an O for one, it's a fly out. And you're like, well, that wasn't a good, that wasn't a good outcome. Exactly. I couldn't say any better. Like uh, several years ago, I think my kid was 10. Uh, he was playing against 12s. in uh, like there was this one kid in our league, uh, in our local little league here um, that was like, that was his target for where he wanted to be when he was 12. Uh, and he, and he, he had an at bat uh, against the kid when he was like 10 years old, uh, hit the ball very hard. Uh, didn't hit it out because he was 10. Uh, but probably hit it like, I don't know, 170, 185 or whatever, hard in mm -hmm. the air, right? And uh, and he came back to the dugout and he was upset. And I was like jumping out of my shoes excited because I was like, dude, you won. Like yeah. you you won that engagement. And I understand that it's not going to be reflected in the box work, but you found a hittable pitch. You created a fantastic outcome, the best possible outcome that you could get relative to that competition, relative to like your total amount of output and you won. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, as it relates to youth sports and specifically as it relates to youth sports as a vehicle for preparing kids to play on a 90 foot field, what plays, right? Like what, what plays? hard grounders through the infield through a youth infield that is like just generally not that great about turning ground balls into outs 
those are really, really productive on a 60 foot field, Mm -hmm. much less. So once you get to 90, what is the stuff that, you know, what is the stuff that plays more when you get on a big field, you got to get the ball hard and you're trying to find some grass. Like that's, that's what it is. But, but there's a significant difference in the incentive, right? If all we're doing is just like what wins games at the youth level, well, contact wins, right? Contact wins. If you put balls in play, you're generally going to get on base. And again, a single or a walk or a hit by pitch is a triple most of the time. (laughs) That's not, that doesn't work on 90 foot baseball. Most of the time, you know, like as you as kids stay in the game, there's natural, um, you know, natural stratification where kids leave the kids that stick around or like the competitors who really want to really want to be there. And they're generally better. So like this game theory, optimal approach um, that was like very, very valid in a previous competition environment, it doesn't scale. Um, and, and, you know, and Jason Nochart had a great story about this that he's told, I think, on a dryline podcast talking about, uh, I believe, you know, he was a, he was a contact guy. Uh, you know, he was a contact guy and utilized his speed. And he got to like, I think his first college practice, uh, hit the ball hard. It was just like, boom, you know, it looks like it's going through like the five, six hole. I'm going to get up and first and take a turn towards second. And he's like two steps away from the bag. And it's like, smell you later. And he's like, wait, <laughs> what, what, what happened? You know, like I, man, that's a, that's a, that's a base hit, you know, for sure. And I might be looking to turn two. And it's like, no, the level of competition accelerates greatly the longer that you stay in the game. If youth sport is the lowest level of consequence, and we know that there's this gigantic change in environment, what are the choices that we're making now that not only maximize engagement and the opportunity to win and be competitive now, but also puts us on a path where we're competitive later too? Um, it, because there is a significant difference in those type of choices that gets resembled in terms of your individual coaching, your team practices, the way you kind of schedule our practices longitudinally, like, and again, the things that you value, you know, what, what do you measure and what matters? And if the only thing that you measure is your win loss percentage, man, you, you are missing the forest for the trees. And it's, I, I agree completely. And the same thing kind of exists on a smaller scale at the high school level as you, you know, go from the freshman to the JV to varsity. It keeps scaling, kids keep getting better. And so we have that discussion a lot with our younger guys of, you know, this is the goal, this is what we want you to be able to do. And you might have times that in the box score they look unsuccessful, unsuccessful as a freshman or even as at the JV level. But ultimately, this will pay off if you stay the course, will win. So you might lose games. I remember one year, um, uh, it was my first year as a, as a coach. We were playing it was, it was in the summer. And the other team beat us by, I'm not joking, like 20 runs. And uh, our, our guys were pretty down about it. And after the game, we kind of talked through it. And I was explaining to them a few things. And I was like, you know, we're on a, on a really hard field because it's <laughs> the end of July. And the district yep. doesn't like to spend a lot of money on water. So every ground ball that that <laughs> team hit, and it was just, I mean, it was ground ball after ground ball, just got through every hole that you could imagine. And I'm like, and we're meanwhile, you know, hitting flyouts and guys are seeming down on it. And I told them just, I promise you, if you stay this course and you wait a couple of years and see where you are and, and see where the guys on that other team are, you're going to be really happy with what you're doing because I am very confident that we're doing the right thing and it's going to pay off just because it didn't pay off today in this one environment is not a reason to evacuate from it. And I think that's something really important for kids to know. And obviously 
as you're getting the parent side for parents to know too. Uh, but anyway, I, Devin, I, I've, I loved having you on. I, I somehow am like only 300 miles south of you guys and still haven't made my way up to driveline. So someday maybe I'll actually finally do it. Um, but before I let you go, I want to hand the mic over to you one more time. And just if there's anything that we didn't get to or any parting thoughts or advice or, or, or any stories, it doesn't matter. Just hand the mic over to you one more time. Oh, sure. Well, uh, yeah, one of these days, man, you, you get up in this area, you let me know, we're going to give you the VIP tour through the through the bat cave and the whole the whole deal. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've seen, uh, I've seen somebody uh, say recently, uh, that like, apparently, there's this conception that somebody thinks that like, I advocate for things uh, that like, don't play at the higher level. Um, and I'm setting kids up for success and it's like, oh, and I'm not interested in, uh, in debating people that are in, uh, that don't agree with me. Um, I'll put this really bluntly. If you don't agree that like for 12 and under youth baseball, the thing, thing that matters most is for kids to have fun. And, uh, then I don't have, man, we can have that conversation about kind of implementation and tactics all day long. Um, because that's fair, but like, you got to understand what that really means. Uh, if you're embracing opportunities for kids to have fun, then that means you're not telling them that you don't trust them to swing the bat because that's what you're doing. And that sucks to be told that it sucks mm -hmm. to be told that like you, you only have like one specific skill. I have a very good friend of mine who has a very good nine-year-old son. Um, he was out here this last week. The kid was hitting for easily like an hour, hour and a half, two hours, basically every day. He is a nine-year-old that just like loves the game and he really wants to get better. And my buddy texted me, they went back home and they had like a tournament and, uh, and the kid just got like the automatic bunt sign, um, every, every AB over the course of this mm -hmm. tournament, um, as adults and specifically as coaches, right? Uh, if you do it right, your parents, your parents, but also your players, most specifically your players trust you and what you say about them. And to a degree, the decisions that you're making about kind of how competitive they are, which play out in these type of decisions, man, they, it carries a lot of weight. And there's a very specific path between going like, I love you and I trust you and I'm okay with you embracing the opportunity for, for success, even if it means you might possibly fail. There's a big difference between that and going like, I don't trust you. And that thing, I think, feels worse. I'm, I'm, I've seen it. I've, uh, I've been around it. And it doesn't feel good for them. And I think ultimately uh, what this all comes down to is just like, what type of choices are you doing as a – are you making as a youth baseball coach that are empowering to kids to keep them staying in the game? Um and, and look, man, if you if you're like, hey, we're going to bunt on this team because that's going to be part of our arsenal. Like, that's great. I, OK, fine. I've, I've been a, like a very no bunting guy. But I also understand that, like, if you're a youth coach who um, wants to balance those two things, that's fine. I sure hope that you pair alongside that some type of additional context or feedback to that kid where it's like, I'm not going to take the worst hitter on the team and uh and stigmatize them and be like this is the one tool you have 
Because if you have every kid on your team from your three or your four hitter all the way down to your nine do bunting, then sure, that's, you know, that, that, that works. What I have seen, unfortunately, all too often is the opposite. It's stigmatization and it is sending a signal to the kid that they don't, that you don't trust them as the coach. And if you do that over and over and over, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, at the beginning of our year last year, we had an indoor tournament in February and we're playing somebody and there was one kid on this roster who it was like the first two or three times through the order, bunt, 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 yeah. comes back around. It's like a bottom of the sixth inning, bases loaded, two outs. The kid bunted on his own. Uh. <laughs> our, our, and it was like right back to the pitcher. Our pitcher got it, threw it, out, game over. They have the kid doing penalty sit-ups in the dugout afterwards. Oh my and it's like, look, man, what did you tell that kid? You, you told him over and over and over and over that I don't trust you to do this, right? And then you actually need them to just find a way to put something in hard into play to score that run. And this was like 9U, man. If you just make contact, it's basically a base hit uh, most of the time. And, uh, and then the kid's like, well, I guess coach thinks all the thing I, the only thing I can do is bunt. So apropos of nothing, I'm going to make that choice. Why? Because the kid believed what you told him. You mm-hmm. told that kid that they couldn't be trusted to swing the bat and they don't trust themselves to swing the bat. So like at the end of the day, uh, my big concern is for that type of kid, what's their path to stay in the game, right? Uh, like what, how likely does that look if you reinforce to them over and over and over that you don't trust them? Um, so again, if you're going to bunt, do it with your entire roster, then, then fine. You can yell at me on Twitter and tell me that I'm an idiot and I'll probably agree. Uh, but, uh, I'm also going to suggest that like, man, we can be very, very clear about the stuff that matters most in this game. And it can be daunting sometimes because we have so much that we need to teach in terms of the technical side of things, in terms of the skill side of things, in terms of the way that you play a game of baseball, it's a really substantial amount of learning. Um, and to a degree, if you try to solve everything, it can get really, really, uh, it feels like you're just carrying like this giant anchor on your back. You also can just kind of go like, look, I don't need to have my 11U team do PFPs for three hours. <laughs> I, I could just go, all right, uh, what's the thing where we can like do that appropriately, but we can also put our time and our chips on the table towards the thing that matter most. Because at the end of the day, I'm pretty certain that like incoming freshmen and they go talk to coach price. Hey kid, where do you play? If that kid can't throw and that kid can't hit and they're like, Oh, I play left field. If you've got a senior and a junior and a sophomore in front of them, you're going to have to get really comfortable with waiting and you're going to be a huge developmental project before that kid's even going to be viable to suit up for your team. If on the other hand, if that kid can play functional baseball kind of all over the place, and this means we're not making like 11-year-old POs, right? Uh, if that could play, kid can play functional baseball all over the place and they have an arm and they can hit, it's a much easier roster problem for you, high school baseball coach, to solve. At least that's that's what I think. And and if that's and if that's true, then there's a whole bunch of other decisions five, six, seven, eight years precede that that raise the likelihood that that kid has a shot at making that roster. And when you have that the that youth player, we, I've had tons of guys who make it to their freshman year who have been physically matured who physically matured well before the other guys their age so we've all been around that kid who's just you know 10 11 years old and he's just a giant and it's really easy for him and he crushes it 
And then you have the kid like you're talking about who has been told all he's, you know, all he is is a guy who can bunt. And we've had kids like that who over time, if they really love the game and probably if they had coaches who valued them and didn't just make them bunt, right. Um, And they get to their high school and, you know, they're still not great, but by the time they're a junior senior, they become a really good player. And we've had quite a few who went on to play college baseball that way, but you know, and like you said, you trace it back to when they're 10 or 11. And if you have a coach who just looks at the big kid, the giant is like, this guy's got a future, this little, this little guy right here is going to be a second baseman for life. And he's just going to bunt. Then you've not only destroyed his chances of, you know, probably wanting to play because it's not fun anymore, but you've really hurt his chances of ever being able to play because he's not going to be good enough because you're not doing the two things you're supposed to do, which is one, make sure it's fun and he wants to play next year and two, actually getting him better at it. Yep. Uh, because that's a thing that you can do. You can teach kids how to hit the ball hard. That like that, that is just a thing that you can teach. I, I do not accept the fact that like, that's not a thing that you can teach. Uh, it is a thing that you can teach, uh, teaching that way. Uh, opens up the door for kids to have a much more competitive experience in the game. And again, man, maybe for that same kid that's like developmentally regressive and they're like a, you know, like a calendar 12, but they're like a biological 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the current term, you can either take choices that make that kid more viable as they say in the game, or you oftentimes can just take make choices that make it more likely that likelihood that that kid is going to help you and not hurt you that that kid is going to increase your likelihood of winning a baseball game. But at the end of the day, there's no amount of 60 foot baseball wins. They're going to make that kid feel good enough. If their high school coach is like, Nope, don't watch you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel good. I, I, you know, I, I'm just, and again, uh, man, we're talking about kid baseball. Um, you know, I think a lot of times like the conduct that we have uh, that we permit for the way that coaches and parents talk to children on a baseball field is like somehow deemed accessible or, or kind of acceptable when it would never be permitted if it was in a classroom. That is the, the just like, why, you know, these aren't professional athletes, they're children. Um, so we can do both, you know, we can, we can hold kids accountable, um, but not be jerks about it. We can incentivize them to develop long-term skills while uh, helping them be competitive in the short term. Uh, you can kind of straddle both sides of the line um, and you should, because, because doing the other thing where it's just like, Hey, you know, what, what are we going to do to sell out to win like the seven U world championship? It's like, good God, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't get it. And I understand that there's a lot of people that are, you know, very much kind of not on that wavelength and that's fine. You know, I, I think the, the weird thing is, is that those people and, and myself and my coaches, you know, uh, Chase Glom, Ben Harley, um, you know, all of our other coaches that we have with us in the Driveline Academy, our intentions are the same, right? We want the best for our kids. It's just a question of like, what matters most when, right? Like what matters the most? And also when does it matter the most? Um, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that again, if the signal that I'm getting from the top end, um, which is that, uh, you know, Pat Bailey is not signing 11 year olds based on their club record, um, <laughs> then, then I should probably take some signal from that. Right. Uh, and if I take some signal from that, then it opens up the door for me to, to pursue long-term development and short-term positive emotional engagement. That, that is a thing that you can do. You kind of just got to get your head screwed on straight. 
Yeah, it's like when uh, we've had kids get to come to their freshman year with us before, and they'll start talking about what their like eleven U team was ranked in the state, and it's like, I, I, don't, I don't, can you play? Like, I don't know. It's yeah. just it, it's that same sort of thing. But Devin, I, I love what Driveline does. Obviously, you guys have been doing amazing things for quite a while. Seeing the growth has been really cool, and and the fruition, uh, but especially the youth side and and the you know the chance that you've had to kind of become this leader in youth baseball, as much as you, you know, you say you're not an expert, but you're, you are. And it's, it's been really special for a lot of us to have the opportunity to hear somebody articulate so clearly what we need to do with youth players. So um, just appreciate you a ton. And, and uh, just thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's my pleasure. You know, like I'm man, I'm, I'm still trying to learn how to do this thing as, as best as I can. Um, and, uh, you know, and I constantly like reevaluate and re kind of think about how and why I think about these things, because if I didn't, then I'm not doing right by my kids. You know, it's, it's not the whole reason that we train with data. A lot of times just like to hold ourselves accountable. I can't say that we're really good about developing players if I don't track it. Um, and I got to hold myself accountable to that standard because we're talking about young kids who are young enough and naive enough that they have that crazy <laughs> dream, right? Like, I'm going to play in the show yeah. and they're like nine, they're like nine to 19. And as you get closer to like the 19 range of things, uh, sometimes the actual like physical reality of that changes. And it very much kind of boils down to like that old, like driveline t-shirt thing. Like, will you sustain it? If you're 18 years old and you throw 72 and you're like D one or bust, well, look, man, that's probably not going to happen because somebody lied to you for like the last eight years of your baseball life. Um, so, uh, if what we're really trying to do is like take kids, inspire them to love them, the game, uh, set them up for long-term success and then like open up the door for them to make their own choices. Then I think there, there is just, you know, there's an optimal path for doing that. And, and the only path that we're kind of on right now is one that at this point in time, as far as I can tell, it's the most viable one. And if that changes in five months or five years, then I will adapt just like everything else, because it's not about me. It's not about the dogmatic stuff that I just like believe in, like it's religion. It's what can I prove and what, what can I know quantifiably sets kids up for success. And the non-quantifiable thing is like, how much fun are my kids having? Right? Like Mm -hmm. if, if, if we can't simply orient around the fact that like youth baseball shouldn't be like fat old guys yelling at kids and it should probably be the other thing. Uh, then that's what we should do. But in order to like pull yourself out of that, um, because again, I, man, anything that I've written about on Twitter or in the youth baseball dev cert about poor coach behavior, I'm writing about it because I've either lived it as a kid or I've done it as a coach. I've been that guy and it sucks and there's a different way to do it. But, but the, to increase your likelihood of being able to kind of execute that transition to go from like a coach, it's like, paranoid about losing because of what you think it means as a reflection of to you to be the other thing, which is like how much, how many of my kids are playing baseball this year that I coached last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, I had one of my kids in my little league year uh, this year, worst player on my team uh, all year. I helped. I focused on that kid to just like have fun and try to do cooler stuff, right? Do cool stuff, man. Uh, hit the ball, make a play. Uh, the kid, as towards the end of the year, made a couple great plays for us in our end of season tournament, and he showed up and he signed up to play summer ball. Like nice. that's man, that is that is all I'm looking for. Uh, and, and and like 
the, the choices that produce that outcome are the same for that kid who's the worst kid on my team and worst in like air quotes, because again, who cares? And it's the same choices for the kids at the best on my team, because we're talking about prepubescent children. And again, my whole objective is to help them be competitive when they show up as freshmen to you, Coach Price, as like kids that you want to go to war with. That's what I'm trying to produce. And that's what hopefully all youth coaches are, are trying to do. And I, I I think it's the right thing. And like you said, if in five five months, five years from now, we find out it's the wrong thing, then sure. But I, I definitely think you're on the right track and, and you're doing everybody a really big service. So thanks again, Devin. Appreciate you. Yeah, you're the man, Max. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. So skills that scale, possibly trademarked. I don't know yet. Uh, Good luck to Devin on that one. But how can you apply skills that scale to your sport? How can you help improve the youth programs that feed into your school? And how can you take that concept and implement it at the high school level too? I hope you found some solid information there. If you didn't, you weren't listening very well. So go back and listen again, but maybe go back and listen again anyway, because there's a lot in there and some amazing takeaways if you weren't paying really, really close attention. Uh, If you aren't signed up for the weekly newsletter, or if you haven't picked up some High School Coaches Club stickers yet, you should definitely do so. Head on over to highschoolcoachesclub.com to get started. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate that a ton. Most importantly, though, if you found any value at all from this episode or any previous episode or anything you've seen in the newsletters, please share this with your friends, fellow coaches, anybody that you know, whether that's through social media or email or whatever. That's how we all get better, and that's how we grow the club. Huge fist bump to Devin Morgan for jumping on the call with me. Thanks again to Netting Pros and Driveline Plus for sponsoring the episode, and to you for clicking that play button. If you have any recommendations for people who should be guests on the show, be sure to reach out to me, even if that recommendation is you. Follow the club on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at HS Coaches Club. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Max Price and can reach me via email, max at highschoolcoachesclub.com. All right, that's it. That's all I've got. You are awesome. You matter. Thanks for all you do. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you.